Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Ed, I wanted to get with the song leader tonight and tell them what I was preaching on, make sure you know they knew because there's some songs about, about this lesson tonight. He had already done it. He had already put one together. That one right there is, is really the central idea of tonight. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. You know, I think it might be great if there, in the second verse we said, prepare us to be a sanctuary. Uh, that's certainly the idea that, that, that we need preparation right here inside each one of us. But then collectively, we're going to prepare to be a sanctuary. Let's talk about that a little bit. I'm fascinated by the different illustrations in the Bible that God gives us to help us understand important things. You know, if you think about uh, the relationship between Jesus and his church, there's lots of, relation, lots of illustrations about that. And if you think about um, how he dwells among us or with us, there's various, various illustrations of that too. Uh, whether it's father, son, father, children, and, and these types of things. But, but this one tonight is kind of some residue, if you will, of, of some material as Anthony was recuperating uh, from his accident and I was filling the pulpit for a little while. I was studying ahead. He was ready to jump back in this morning. So I have a little, a little stuff over here uh, that I want to, uh, to give to you tonight. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I hope you do too. But in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking about being God's field. He's talking about being God's building. And then he specifies the kind of building he wants us to be. And we, we are to be a holy building. And he says this in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So when we just sang, O oh Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, uh, God promised to dwell in us, but he also promised to build us into a temple and dwell in us. It's kind of hard to understand what that's about unless you go back to the Old Testament, uh, which is why we have that thing still attached to the holy book. Uh, for our learning, Paul said, this is definitely one of those things that, that when Paul said that the, the scriptures of old are for our learning, that this is, this is required reading for us to go back and dig some of this out. Even so, I can't dig it all out uh, tonight in one lesson, but I want to run through uh, the gist of it with you. Alan, do you have that clicker? Did you leave it up here? We were, sp we were supposed to relay that. <laughs> I can want to, <laughs> we talked about doing that, but um, yeah, thanks, Tim. Let's go through the Old Testament first. And look at what the temple was about. It's rooted in the teachings of the, or of the, uh, of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God and the temple, there, there's, there's a relationship between those two. Uh, the temple evolved out of the tabernacle idea. But um, these things represent, this, this building um, represents things that no other structure could represent possibly. It's full of meaning. Things that they didn't even fully understand when they were serving in the, in the tabernacle or the temple. There was no way for them to really fully grasp it. 
But in the New Testament, and especially in books like Hebrews, we get commentaries on it, and it's terrific. So let's walk through a little bit at a time here. First of all, in Exodus 25, 8, God said, And let them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell in it. So the first thing we want to know about this tabernacle that, that becomes the temple is that God, it's God's idea, and it was for him to dwell there in a visible way. So that just like today, it's kind of difficult to think what, to picture what God's doing in heaven. Well, he gave them a very visible place and a way that they could, could say that God is here. He's present in this place and he would dwell in it. So he said, I want you to build a tabernacle or a booth or a house so that I can dwell in it. This tabernacle was really a, a pretty sophisticated portable tent system. It was a camp. And um, it was uh, in its enclosure, it held a court, an inner court, where there were sacrifices made. Well, let me get back to this. I'm sorry. We're going to evolve into the temple here in a second. I think I got ahead of myself on my slide. Excuse me for just a second. All right, let's go to this, this point right here. Um, there was an outer court in this tabernacle area where there was an enclosure of, of, of uh, materials to keep everything inside and where they would serve. And in the outer court, there was an altar where sacrifices were made. And then if you moved on into the inside, uh, you found uh, a sanctuary made of two rooms, one larger and one smaller, called the holy place and the most holy place. In the temple, when they built the temple, the temple had a foundation, had a cornerstone, and it had hewn stones, hand-hewn stones. One of the prophecies, if you remember, in the book of Daniel was about when God builds his building, that he would build it out of stones not made by human hands, and that the cornerstone be cut out of the mountain without hands. And uh, he was referring to that in the book of Daniel. So the temple has this, in the tabernacle, has this outer court where there are sacrifices made. The temple was made, then its structure, with a foundation, a chief cornerstone, and hewn stones. So moving into the, um, the two rooms. In the first room, which was called the holy place, there were three simple pieces of furniture. It's three simple pieces of furniture. God designed the specs of them, the specifications. Um, he commanded exactly how they were to uh, view these things, how they were to serve with these things, and that they were holy. And there was very specific ways that they were to serve, as you know, when you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. The three pieces of furniture were, the uh, first one is the menorah. It's known as the menorah. It's the candle stand that held the seven candlesticks. The second one is the table of showbread, and the third is the altar of incense. They were to keep the candle stand, the menorah, burning constantly. It was never to go out. They were to keep the altar of incense burning with incense, and it was never to go out. The candle stand provided the light for that place. The incense provided a, a pleasant aroma in that place. And the table of showbread was a table that had 12 loaves of bread that would sit on it for one week. Uh, and it represented the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And on the seventh day, the priests would have a common meal with that bread. I kind of chuckled when I, when I was reminded about that. They got to eat it on the seventh day after it was sitting out, right? We like to go for the first day and then throw it away after seven. They ate it on the seventh day together, but they ate it together. And then they put fresh bread out for the next week. Um, and, and so that's, that was the furniture that was in the place. And um, they served just those, those very simple purposes, but they were to be handled very meticulously. When you moved into the most holy place, which is the most interesting room, this is the place where the high priest would go in just once a year, and he was to be very reverent. In fact, he was to have bells around the bottom of his train, of his robe, so that the people could hear him serving in there with anticipation. Anticipation that everything was okay. That he was revering God as he offered a sacrifice for himself first and begged for forgiveness from God for himself as a human being. And then for all the people. And as long as the people could hear those bells on his robe, they knew that his offering was being accepted by God. If the bell stopped, you know what that meant. That means as he came in before the Lord irreverently, he would be struck dead by God. <laughs> Serious business, isn't it? And so the most holy place was a place that the high priest would go in once a year. There was the ark in there, the, uh, the box, the ark that held the tablets of stone from Moses on the mountain. There was also on this stand, um, there was the... Um, tablets of stone, there was a golden plated jar of manna that was actually manna kept from the wilderness wanderings in there. And then Aaron's rod that budded when Israel was clamoring about, well, why are you and your family the ones serving? And they all had a rod made with the names of the heads of the tribes on them and they brought them together and God said, I will choose the rod of the family that will serve. And in the morning, Aaron's rod had budded and produced almonds and had fruited. And so everybody knew that, okay, God just proved by miracle that Aaron and his family are the ones to serve. And they kept that in there. That's a good place to keep it. In case anybody would try to overthrow that idea and come in there, they'd have to look right at that rod that had budded where God had said, Aaron and his family are to serve as the priest. And I love this. He said, I give them to you as a gift for service. So the Levites were a, were a gift for service. Aaron and his family were a gift who offered these offerings and sacrifices, and the Levites would help serve in that way. At the top of the ark were two cherubim whose wings touched, and that was called the mercy seat. That was the place where God would actually commune or communicate and forgive the sins of the people. That's where he said, meet me there at the mercy seat. And so these are some of the articles of furniture that were in the, uh, the courtyard, the stone altar for sacrifices, the three pieces that were in the holy place, and then these four pieces, if you will, and including in the ark, um, the, uh, in the most holy place. That ark represented a covenant with Israel. But when you come to the New Testament, we're told some things about that covenant. Paul called it a covenant of death. And that was because it's impossible for a man to keep all the laws of God in his life. And that law did not 
also offer within it a way to obey in such a way that you could be saved, in such a way that it would, that it would atone for all of your sins. That's still the case today, that we cannot keep the rules of God so well that he will say, you're, you're perfect. You just did that so well, I've got to let you, and I'm obliged to let you into my home and my dwelling place. And so that covenant, though it gave the guidance and direction and the tutelage to the people, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law that was laid up beside it, uh, was a covenant of death. It just wasn't adequate, but it did represent an agreement. And that agreement built into it was that there would be a day if you are obedient under this covenant, if you seek my face, I will forgive your sins through these sacrifices for a time until there's a better day coming when you'll receive full atonement in another covenant that Jeremiah talked about that would be written on your heart and in your mind. Another covenant coming. But that covenant represented that. And the, uh, the manna, I was doing some reading about that, was representative of God's, of God's uh, presence and feeding them while they were in the wilderness. And the rod, of course, was signifying that, that the priests that were serving there of Aaron's family were the elect. And if anyone defiled the temple, uh, God fiercely defended it, and he defended his people, except when, uh, I'm going to say, if any outsiders tried to defile it, God would fiercely defend it. But when it was defiled from within by God's people, he would depart from them for a time. And when he would depart from them, hey, all protection, all, all uh, promises of, of peace, of security, all those things were conditional upon their obedience. But his promise for a better covenant coming remained. So the temple that David sought to build, God said, Have I, I've dwelt with you all these years in the wilderness. I've not asked for a better home. David said, we've got paneled houses and the Lord needs a better place. He said, no, but I'll have your son build a, a temple for me. I'd rather build you a house, is what God said to David. And I'd rather build you a kingdom and give you a king that would last forever. But, but I'll have your son build a house for me. And so this is one of those prophecies that had dual meanings. Solomon, David's son, actually built the temple with God's authority. And then, of course, the son that would come from David's body down the line, Jesus Christ, would build a house for God that would last forever. And you know who that is. That's us. That's us. So, so these, all these articles had, and this uh, temple had significance on into the future. How are we the temple of God today? I've touched a little bit on a few things, but let's go, but let's go through and compare here um, how we can be a temple of God today and, and be a holy temple today. Everything in the New Testament that you read about the temple is, becomes living. Everything that was in the temple becomes alive in the New Testament. And that's what's fascinating to me. So let's walk back through and look at how uh, we are a living temple of living stones and that God lives in us. First of all, he said in 1 Corinthians 3.17, Paul said, 
that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Don't you know this? We should know this. They've been taught that. And so he's calling upon their remembrance to say, don't you remember that God himself dwells in you and among you and he is walking with you and he is your God and you are, you are his people? Don't you recall that? Don't defile this temple. God destroys those who defile his temple. Just look to the Old Testament. So God is living among us. He's living among us. Jesus said, wherever there are two or more gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. So the temple is not just when we come into this facility. Certainly, this is a time and a place on the first day of the week that God has called us all together to commune with him around the table uh, and, and, and the Lord's Supper. Certainly that is the case, but just like the kingdom of God is spiritual and goes wherever we go, so this temple of God abides one stone at a time. Uh, God dwells in Matt as Matt leaves the facility and as you leave the facility, but wherever there are, there are Christians gathering, that temple comes and, and, is, and these stones are fitted together and it's a dwelling place for God as a temple. If we're the temple of God, then we have a living foundation. And that living foundation supports a living cornerstone, which supports the fitted stones that are built on top of it. How's the foundation alive? Well, Paul said in Ephesians 2, and we've, we've read it several times in the recent months, where he said that we were built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus said in Matthew 7, whoever hears these words and does them, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So this foundation is the word of God. It's the words of Christ, which he says the Father has given me and I've given to you. He said, you can't bear them all now. So he told his apostles that I will send the Spirit to you and he will reveal to you all truth, the rest of the things that you need to know. And as the apostles preached and, and laid out that word of God, that foundation was built that all the rest stands on. And that's, that's what we're standing on. Our values, our mission, our beliefs, our actions, all have to be founded upon the origin of the mind of God given to us in his language of what he wants us to be and to do. Uh, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue. And so this foundation is living because God said, my word is living and powerful. It works in you. It changes you. It gets down into your heart when you hear it, and it cuts down to the, to the joints and bones and marrow, and it reveals all that's in you. It's, it's alive. The word is always working, and it's alive. So that foundation, I would call in a general way, the word of God. Christ is considered a cornerstone which would be laid with that foundation in a corner and which would give it the rest of the stones on top of it support and also direction going each way of, of being balanced and built strongly. And so Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. If he's laid in there just right, 
Anything built on top of him will stand forever, especially stones, like, like we're talking about the temple. And so Jesus has been laid just perfectly. Paul said in that same chapter in 1 Corinthians 3, he said, No other foundation has any man laid than that which is laid, and that is Jesus Christ. His foundation is there for us to build our lives upon. And then the living stones, Peter called us living stones. We're living stones. We are being hewn and cut. Jesus did not need to be hewn and chiseled and cut. He was drawn out of the mountain and laid beautifully, the prophet said. But we need to be fitted together, Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. We need to be cut and shaped and chiseled. I think about that. I think, you know... Um, the harder my head is and the harder my heart is, the harder God's got a chisel on me to get me to fit in with his cornerstone and his people, the other stones. And so what he wants us to do, not that rocks can be pliable or flexible, but he wants us to allow him to work on him. Now, there's other illustrations about this, like Ezekiel said, you know, he's the potter, we're the clay. Uh, he wants to take our hard heart out and give us a heart of flesh. And that idea is there is just be pliable and workable. Well, this is the idea that I can be, I have a permanent salvation. I have a permanent promise of eternal life. It's like rock solid. The salvation I've received from Jesus is rock solid. So he, he kind of pulls out the fitted illustration and says, let him, then let him chisel you a little bit. Take the rough edges off and these corners that are a little bit spiky. Let him chisel some of that stuff off and, and get you to fit in with his program and fit in with his people a little bit more. And so that's how we're living stones in this temple today. I like this. We've been made priests. Priests were those who mediated between God and man and had direct access to God. The high priest was the mediator, I should say. The priests were those who were bridge builders. That's built into the meaning of that word. They would, they, would, they would reconcile man and God together through sacrifices. Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he has gone into the most holy place and he has taken that heavy veil, figuratively speaking, and removed it and gone on into the presence of God as our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Then he said, I have made you priests, which means we have access to God in his inner court, in his sanctuary, where he dwells. We're invited in. We're not... We're not in the court of the Gentiles anymore. We're not on the outside of the temple. We're actually invited in as priests to offer sacrifices and to have connection with God and also to connect others with God. And we are told in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to offer living sacrifices. In fact, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. So if you think about how they took the animals and they slaughtered them and laid them upon the altar and they were dead. 
and they were offered up, he said, I want you individually to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Nothing has to die in this sense, except in your heart and mind, dying to sin and offering yourself to God. What do some of those look like? I think a great example is in Hebrews 13, in, the, in two verses, uh, we can see verses 15 and 16, what these living sacrifices look like. Listen to this. They're free will offerings. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God. Our gratitude, our, our free will offering to come here together as a temple and as priests in the temple, offering up praises to God from our lips is an offering to God of praise that he desires. Then in the very next verse, it says that there is a sacrifice of obedience. So there's words that we can praise God with and offer to him, but he says, do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We've been talking a lot about Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, where we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? We've talked about how those impact people. And here he says, quite simply, remember to do good and to share. These are sacrifices. There's your good works. Church, when we go about doing good works for the purpose of glorifying God, those are sacrifices that you are offering to God of yourself for his glory. And when we share, we share like the priests shared meals together and they shared with their family of the sacrifices. When we share like this with each other and we do good for all men, God is well pleased with those sacrifices. Word and deed, whatever you do, in word and deed do all in the name of the Lord, right? And uh, John said, don't just worship God with, with your words and with your tongue, but in deeds and in truth. And so we see that it's a very simple idea. To offer yourself as a living sacrifice means that you're free to praise God with your lips and confess him as your Lord, to share him with others, but you're also in your works offering sacrifices to him. If we're the temple of God today, then we need to keep the candle stand burning. You go to the book of Revelation and you read the letters to the seven churches. One of those churches was told, I will come and snuff out your candle if you do not repent. And this is that idea being carried out that there's a candle burning, which means there's light shining, right? This isn't hard, is it? There's, there's light and it's supposed to always be burning. The light is always supposed to be burning. God is supposed to be present among us because he's welcome here. And then we are supposed to be reflecting the grace and the love and the truth that he is giving us amongst each other and amongst the world, and there should always be a light. So you could say that the Pickerington Church of Christ is a light in this community. Always keep it burning. The altar of incense is similar in that this always needs to be burning. Incense is burning. If you go to the book of Revelation, again, if you read about the altar of incense in chapter 4, I believe it's the prayers of the saints that when the elders and the four creatures fell down around the throne to worship God, uh, the elders were holding in their hands golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
So the Bible is common, a commentary on all of these items in the temple. And even though back in the day they may not have fully understood how this was all going to play out, they desired to look into it. We have the privilege of being able to look and see how these things... Now, if we're the temple of God, that means this is a house of prayer. Doesn't that sound like a familiar phrase to you? My house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves, Jesus said, when he went in and cleansed the temple. Made my father's house a den of thieves, but it's a house of prayer. We should always be offering prayers to God of thanksgiving and asking him through supplication to provide everything we need, which he said he would do. We just have to be uh, about inviting God into our presence, and we need to be ready for him when he comes. That table of showbread that represented the people of God, the 12 tribes, sat in their presence. It was showbread. It was for show. And they could look at that bread visibly as an emblem of God reaching out to them in communion. I'm, I'm here to share a common meal with you. There's a lot of ways he could have represented the tribes. He did in other occasions by rocks and so forth, right? But in the temple, he had those loaves. And then at the end of the week, isn't that interesting? The priests would together break that bread and commune, eat that bread, and then put another 12 loaves out. God wants us to know that he wants to, to, to invite us around and share a meal as a friend, as a father with his children. And that was something that should make communion a little extra special. You take that and uh, really look into that. Thank you, Rick, by the way, for doing a great job this morning at the table. That was excellent. Let's wrap it up with this idea. In order for us to build something God is able to dwell in, we've got to keep his commandments and revere his holiness. He is holy. That's, that's who he is. That means he's unique. There's none like him. And because of that, we should fear God and keep his commandments. To David, he said, concerning this temple which you're building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David. He said this to Solomon, excuse me. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Just apply that today. If you walk in my statutes, execute my judgment, keep my commandments and walk in them, and I'll perform all my promises for you and I'll dwell among you, my people. Let's remember with solemn warning also uh, the warning of Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, as we seek God in, in this temple that we are and dwell in his presence. And Moses said to Aaron, quote, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. God's presence and God's saving purposes is such a serious matter to him that he made this statement through Paul, which we read, if anyone defiles this temple, I will destroy him. Nobody should mess with the temple. There's a light burning that needs to burn so people can find God. There are prayers being offered that change lives, circumstances, and futures. 
There's communion here with God around the showbread and around what Jesus instituted also as His blood, the fruit of the vine. There's communion here. He said, if anyone tries to divide, stir, destroy, I will act. I will act swiftly. Sometimes that comes from the outside. Sometimes there's persecutions that arise and governments rise up against the church. That must be what that is. No, he was talking to his people. And if anyone defiles this temple in such a way that it, it snuffs out light, it breaks the body down. It divides the body in two. I'll seek that person out. I'll seek them out. There'll be accountability for that. That's, that's a solemn warning, isn't it? And we need to remember that, that that is brought right into this living temple that we are. And so let's be a holy temple. Let's be unique. Let's reflect, as we talked about this morning, as, as Rick talked about, on who we are and whether we're obedient to the Lord, whether there's idols in our lives that we put up, up above Christ as our king and that defile us and that we come into the presence of a holy place or the holy people and, and bring sin into the camp. Let's consider those things. And, but let's remember this. This is for the glory of God. It's for the saving of souls. And it's for our joy to know our God fully. But of course, he has to tell us, don't take this lightly. This is such a serious matter. It's life and death. It's life and death. We want the world to fall down at the feet of Jesus and worship, don't we? Don't you want your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends, your family who don't know God and don't obey God, don't you want them to fall down at the feet of Jesus in worship, to offer sacrifices of praise and good works and share with the heart of God? I do, I know I do. And so we need to look out for ourselves and we come together as living stones being drawn to Him, Christ as a living stone, and be ready when we come together to worship and to serve, when we meet together in any capacity, to be those who are building the temple, which building project goes on and on and on, and not destroying it. Well, I hope you enjoyed some of that symbolism. Again, we didn't get too deeply, but that's a rundown of, of uh, the tabernacle and temple, and a reminder that we are that temple that God dwells in, and it's a glorious thing. Well, we'll have some songs now, and I'll turn it over to the song leader. But if anyone needs to repent and be baptized into Christ, become a living stone in his temple, uh, you can do that tonight. We have water to baptize you, and we have the will to help you. Let's stand and sing.